Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you. Acts 15. If you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we actually have Bibles out on the Next Steps table. They're free. Please take one, especially if you're a visitor here. We want you to walk away with the Bible. Uh, but Acts chapter 15. And before we dive into our teaching, uh, let's pray. Let's pray that God would, would meet us now, that he'd be our teacher, that he would uh, yeah, meet us in this moment. So let's pray together. God, everything that we just sang is true. Your goodness is, is always near us. God, you are more than faithful to your promises. Every single promise is yes and amen in your son, Jesus. And we are so grateful for that. And God, you are the God of the universe. You are holy, you're majestic, you're good, you're kind, you're faithful, you're just, and you're righteous. And you are a God of grace. God, how we need to hear that message this morning, that you are a God of grace. The last thing that we need is a laundry list of things that we have to do. We need to hear about what you've done, how you love us, how you've given us your grace, and you make your face to shine upon us. So I pray, God, as we look to your scriptures now, we pray that that message would come through loud and clear because it's the message our hearts, our souls desperately need. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, your gift of grace to us. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, Iowa caucuses, they took place last Tuesday. And we have, you know, the New Hampshire primaries coming up, which means in the United States, it's official. We've entered election season, which means we're all counting to the days, right? 287 days, 23 hours, 36 minutes away from polls opening in America. Who's excited? Not a lot of us. You know, and with election season officially underway, we just expect it, right? There's going to be debate, going to be controversy, there's going to be arguments, all to be expected in 2020, right? It was, it was debates about COVID policy. Then there were debates about Supreme Court appointments, you know, should there be term limits, should, you know, there be indefinite court appointments. There were arguments over crime, racial policies, controversies over laptops, voting machines, all the like. This election cycle, there's expected to be debate around foreign policy, inflation, interest rates. There's going to be controversy about education. That's already been talked about a lot. You know, what should kids be taught in schools? That's on everybody's mind. There's also been debates about immigration. These are really debates, the questions that have defined the United States for the past half decade. And for the first 15 years of the church's existence, remember, we're going through the book of Acts. We're just continuing on in our study here. And the book of Acts is about the ongoing work of Jesus through the church. Jesus has ascended into heaven, but he's poured out his spirit on the church. And his work continues. And for 15 years within the church, there's been debate. There's been conflicts, controversy. There's been arguments. But most of the conflicts, most of the debates, they were just matters of personal opinion. They were matters on secondary issues, right? You could be person A and he would say, you know, I, I view things this way and this is how I understand that teaching. This is my opinion on the matter. That, that's how I think about it. You could have person B 
say, well, I see it a little bit differently. I think about it in this way and understand that issue in this particular light. So I, I don't know. I, I think I disagree. That, that's how most of the debates have been. Secondary issue debates. Just like debates that we still have in the church today on secondary issues. You, you can have these debates and nothing of substance is threatened. It's like debates that we have today on baptism. Should we practice baptism for believers only or should we have baptism for children of believing parents because we believe they're members of God's covenant or we have debates around church organization should churches be independent non-affiliated not a part of a particular denomination with no formal oversight of members or should churches be connected to one another and hold each other accountable by external uh, means there's debate over the frequency of communion some of you think we should have it every month Others of you think we should only have it every quarter. There's some of us who think, no, it's a weekly basis type of thing. All of those debates continue today. And there's freedom. There is freedom to say, let's agree to disagree. Because even though we may not see eye to eye on these issues, they're matters of secondary importance. They don't touch the core of what Christianity is at its essence. You can be Baptist you can be Anglican, you can be Lutheran, or you can be correct. I'm sorry, I mean Presbyterian. <laughs> Presbyterian. Right? Sorry, misspoke there. <laughs> you can fall into any one of those particular denominations, and if they hold to the central truths of Scripture, the primary teachings of the Bible, we can disagree, agree to disagree. Nothing's threatened. But there are some issues, some debates, some controversies that aren't quite that simple. They can't just be resolved by saying, well, let's agree to disagree. On some issues, to disagree means that we actually have different definitions of what Christianity is. To disagree means the core teachings are threatened. They're struck at. And something, something has to be defined. We need to make a judgment on what is true, what is false. To have five people who believe five different things on a core doctrine, to say let's just agree to disagree would be to have five different definitions of what Christianity is. We can't have that. There's some issues, some debates, some teachings that require decisions to be made, judgments to be made. They require the church to actually take a stand and say, this is what Christianity is. As we open up Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we, we see that for the first time in 15 years of the church's history, there is a teaching that surfaced, that threatens the very core, the primary teachings of Scripture. As 15 opens, Paul and Barnabas, they're in a church in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas had returned from their first missionary journey, and they had planted several churches throughout the Greco-Roman world. But as they return to Antioch, kind of their home base. And after they'd seen Gentiles entering the church in mass, Gentiles were non-Jewish, non-ethnically Jewish believers. As they've seen these Gentiles enter in mass, they return to Antioch in verse one. There are people in Antioch teaching something that threatens the heart of Christianity. Verse one says, but some men came down from Judea 
and we're teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It took 15 years, but here you go. For the first time, a teaching has surfaced that threatens the core of Christianity. Here are men from Judea, and they, this is the area immediately around uh, Jerusalem. They've come to Antioch, they've entered the church, and they've filled this church with this teaching, which is full of Gentiles, by the way. The church in Antioch was known as being a Gentile Christian community, and they're teaching, hey, you believe in Jesus? That's great. Oh, that's fantastic. You believe in Jesus? That's important. After all, he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Christ, the one the Old Testament spoke about. He's God's only Son who died for the forgiveness of your sins. That's all well and good, but it's not enough. No, you need something more. You don't need just Jesus. You need Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus is great. Don't get us wrong. We, we love Jesus. We're all about Jesus. But you need something more. Believing in Jesus as your Savior, believing in Jesus for your salvation, believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins before a holy and righteous God is not enough. You need Jesus plus circumcision according to the custom of Moses. If you don't have that, you come up short. You cannot be saved. That was their teaching. You need Jesus plus circumcision, according to the custom of Moses. And this is important, very important. You look at verse 5. Circumcision was where this teaching started, but once you start adding pluses, you start adding more pluses. It didn't end here. Verse 5, we read, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the laws of Moses. Circumcision is where it began, but it didn't end there. Alongside circumcision, these teachers were saying, oh yeah, and you know those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament? You got to keep all those too. You got to keep all of those laws. Circumcision is where this began. You have to believe in Jesus, then be circumcised. Once you've been circumcised, you have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. It's Jesus plus circumcision plus obedience to the Mosaic law equals salvation. That's their formula. That's their teaching. And it's infiltrated the church in Antioch for the first time. So to give you a sense of what they were teaching, go back to the Mosaic law. You go back to the ceremonial laws that had been prescribed by God. And you get a sense of what they were requiring. If you're going to be a Christian, if you expect to be saved, to be included in the church, well, look at Leviticus 23. You've got to keep all the ceremonial feast days. So Leviticus 23, verse 5, God commanded the observance of Passover. Leviticus 23, 10, God commands the feast of the first fruits. You've got to go to that. Leviticus 23, 16, you're required to celebrate the feast of weeks. Leviticus 23, 24, you have the Feast of Trumpets. I hope you brought your calendar, by the way, because you should be writing these down. Leviticus 23, 27, you have the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23, 36, you have the Feast of Booths. You need to celebrate that as well. You need to believe in Jesus, plus circumcision, plus feast day observance. Anything short of that, you can't be saved. Then there's the dietary laws. forgot to mention those. God had this system where he said with land animals, there's clean animals, unclean animals. Animals you can eat, that's okay. Animals you can't eat, not okay. Leviticus 11, 
Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals, those you may eat. Split hoof, it chews grass, you can eat it. Not a split hoof, doesn't eat grass, you can eat it. My kids, they said, well, could they eat rabbit? No, not split hoof. Choose the grass, but not split hoof. So they couldn't eat squirrels? Well, let's be, let's be crystal clear here. We don't eat squirrels, okay? <laughs> we don't do that. But they couldn't either. Nope, couldn't do it. Pigs, could they eat pigs? I, I see what you're, you're thinking. Split hoof, good, but they don't, they don't chew grass, right? They, they eat slop, so you can't do it. It's complicated. If you need me to come explain it to your kids, I can there was other animals as well. It wasn't just land animals. It was birds, birds of the air. It was fish. It was crustaceans, bugs. Got to follow those too. It's like the OxyClean commercial at this point, right? But wait, there's more. Because we still haven't got to the other laws. There's laws about diseases, childbirth, tithing, sacrificial offerings, and everyone's favorite, bodily discharges. There are all those laws as well. That was their teaching, though. The formula was Jesus plus circumcision, feast days, dietary laws, sacrificial offerings, plus, 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 anything short of that. You can't be saved. Salvation is not within your grasp. That's not true Christianity. That was their teaching. That's their formula. And just so we're clear, this teaching never dies never dies, never has died, was solved here. The formula that's correct is solved here, but it never dies. It cropped up again in the fifth century. It was actually the predominant view of Christianity from the 11th century to the 16th century. This Jesus plus method of salvation, it's present in the 21st century. Still see it today. You need faith in Jesus plus Daily quiet times, 15 minutes in scripture a day. You have to make sure your prayer, you're quiet before the Lord. You submit before the Lord daily with him, 15 minutes a day. I don't know how you could be a real Christian if you don't do that. Never mind the fact that we didn't have printed Bibles for people's personal consumption for the first one and a half millennia of Christianity. But you've got to do it. I can't, I, I can't believe you could be a Christian without doing that. You need faith in Jesus plus a particular version of the Bible. It's got to be the KJV. Never mind that nobody understands it. But it's got to be the KJV or the ESV or the NIV or the NRSV or whatever V you want. It's got to be that one. Otherwise, I don't know how you could be a Christian. You need faith in Jesus plus this political affiliation. You have to vote and advocate for this particular issue because, oh man, how could you in good conscience, conscience be a Christian and vote for that guy? You need faith in Jesus plus confession of sins to a priest in order to receive the sacraments of the church. You need faith in Jesus plus fasting during this calendar season, no meat on Fridays. You need faith in Jesus plus a dramatic conversion experience. And you need to know the day you were converted. You need faith in Jesus plus membership to a particular denomination. You need faith in Jesus plus abstinence from tobacco, you need faith in Jesus, plus refraining from alcohol, which presents a little bit of a problem because Jesus would have a hard time being a Christian in that paradigm. It took 15 years, but now 
for the first time, this teaching threatens the core, the core of what Christianity is at its heart. You need faith in Jesus plus circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses, the Mosaic ceremonial law. Apart from that, you cannot be saved. And in this debate, because this debate has cropped up in Antioch, lines are drawn in the sand. There's two camps now, right, in Antioch. You see it in verse 2. It says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas are saying, we've We've preached this message throughout the Greco-Roman world. We planted churches. We've seen Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. They didn't have to be circumcised at all. Wait a minute. This is not true Christianity. It cuts at the core of what we've been teaching, what the churches believe, and what Christianity is. To teach what you teach is to believe a different gospel. To believe a different God, to believe a different Christianity. So here are the lines. Two camps. And first, it's good to acknowledge there's agreement among these groups. The first agreement is God is the creator of the universe. Human beings are made in God's image. They're the crown of God's creation, special, distinct above all of God's creation. But that humanity has rebelled against God. They've sinned against God. And because of that, humankind stands under the wrath and condemnation of God for our sins. But here's where they disagree. you got Paul and Barnabas in, in this camp over here. And they're saying, they're teaching sinners and those broken by sin, which we should just say every single human being, is saved only by the sheer grace of God through Jesus. That Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection have accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. Jesus' work is enough. You cannot add to it. When Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, he took the law of Moses and fulfilled it completely so that we now stand perfect and righteous because of his obedience. When Jesus died a death of crucifixion on the cross, Jesus took all the penalties of of the Mosaic law, everything that was required to be paid out for lawbreakers. He took that all upon himself when he died on the cross so that we are now completely forgiven if we're in him and have faith in him. When Jesus rose from the dead, he did everything to reconcile us to God. In short, this side says it is done. It's done. Jesus has done everything we need to be saved. Trust in him. Believe in him. You are saved. You are clothed in Christ. And it's enough. The other side, the Judaizers, they're saying, well, grace is great, yes, but only partly are we saved by grace. To this grace is also required that we observe the Mosaic laws. Otherwise, you can't be saved. We're saved by grace, yes, but it's partly through the grace of Jesus and partly through our own good works and religious performances. It's a mixture of faith and a mixture of works, a mixture of Jesus and a mixture of Moses, a mixture of faith and a mixture of the law. You think of it as a ladder, right? You have a ladder that goes from earth up to heaven. The question is, how do we get to heaven? Paul and Barnabas, this camp over here, they're saying God himself God sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he came all the way down the ladder and he took sinners who are broken, sinners who need 
saving sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And Jesus scooped them up, put them on his shoulder, and carried them up to heaven. We contribute nothing to the equation other than we embrace the fact that he's come and save us. That's Paul and Barnabas. Then you got the Judaizers. They're saying, yeah, we believe in the latter. We believe in grace. Jesus has come about halfway down. Good news, right? But now you got to climb the other half. You got to obey. You got to do good things. You got to perform for God. And if you've done enough at the end, then hopefully you meet him high enough and then he'll, you'll, he'll bring you up to heaven. You guys go together. That's the two camps. Two teachings. The last thing the church can say here is let's just agree to disagree. These are fundamentally different ideas of what Christianity is, what God has done, what the gospel proclaims, and what Jesus has accomplished. One side says it's done. The other side says you still got stuff to do. You better get about doing it. So the church needs to take a step. They need to make some sort of solution happen here. So the church does take steps toward a decision. You read verse 2. It reads, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Because we see in verse 6 that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This had already been a debate as Paul and Barnabas were traveling throughout the Mediterranean world on their missionary journey. And they've already assembled to start discussing this question. So the church in Antioch sends Paul, sends Barnabas to go debate, pray, seek wisdom, look at scripture, hear both sides. And ultimately, at the end of the day, this council in Jerusalem has to decide what is true Christianity, which camp is right? Which camp is true? It's important to note this. You're going to see how this council unfolds, but this is very important even before you read what happens in the council. The assumption here is that church unity, for the church to be together, to be one, it requires decisions that will divide. Let me explain what I mean here. Kevin DeYoung, uh, I think he puts this well. He comments on this passage. He says, it's possible that people can look at Acts chapter 15 and they can say, isn't this great? You know, the church had this big controversy going on and they're going to come together. They're going to dialogue about their problems and they're going to ask questions and listen deeply to one another. And the church is going to lay out their differences. And at the end of the day, the apostles agree, the elders agree, the pastors agree. This is how we should handle disagreement today. And we can hear one another, move on, make up, be unified. And it can be a beautiful display of our unity in Christ. And that did happen at this council. But it only happened for those who agree with the truth. It didn't happen for the party of the Pharisees and the Judaizers. They were determined out of bounds. That's not what Christianity is. It's easy to miss that. There are core primary teachings that are so important. They require a decision to be made. And those issues, in order for us to have church unity, it requires that we actually divide from what's false. 
So the Jerusalem council, they're, they're unified in the belief. We'll see this. They're unified in the belief. Jesus plus, that's not true Christianity. It's not a secondary issue or matter of personal opinion. To say that salvation requires faith in Jesus plus works of the law, it threatens the very heart of what Christianity is. So a division and separation needs to be made between what's true and what's false. And for those who were closest to Jesus, for those who knew the heart of Christ, you might think, well, there's a lot of debate going on here. Surely, in the midst of this debate, the final vote had to come out like 52 to 48. But that's not what we see. For those who are closest to the heart of Jesus, they're unanimous. They're, they're lockstep in agreement. Look at verse 7. Peter's the first to stand up, and we see, he says, hey, it's by free grace. We add nothing to the equation. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to Acts chapter 10 when 10 years before God called Peter to go speak a message to a Gentile named Cornelius. And Peter's saying, God didn't send me to circumcise Cornelius. He didn't tell me, hey, Cornelius, you got to observe the Passover. Cornelius, you have to obey the dietary laws. He didn't send me to do that. No, he told me to go to Cornelius, proclaim the message of Jesus, the gospel, and that's it. No additions. And when I did that, verse 8, salvation came. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith, not by works of the law. When they heard the message of Jesus and believed, it was enough. They didn't need anything else. Their hearts were not cleansed. They were not forgiven of their sins by circumcision. No, they believed in Christ. They were born again by the Spirit of God, whom they received just like we did. God's grace in Jesus, faith in Him was more than enough. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because you realize Christianity it is the only religion, is the only God who says that. Christianity is fundamentally different from every other world religion. Nobody knows for sure. There's an estimated 4,000 plus religions throughout the world. And I can't say everything about every religion, but I can say this with almost clear conscience, right? That every other religion other than Jesus, at the core of their teaching, they teach that you accumulate a good record before God. And on the basis of that record, God approves you. God loves you. You're accepted by that God. That's what religion says. Jesus, on the other hand, says, I've accumulated a good record before God. I've done it all. In fact, I've died for the ways that you've disobeyed. And if you embrace me, if you cling to me, if you just trust in me, then it's all yours as a free gift of unmerited grace. Only Jesus says that. I teach my kids catechism. We do, we do this thing called catechism. And catechism is 
It's a question and answer for kids to teach them the core doctrines of Christianity. And one of the questions is, is very simple. It, it asks, how can we be saved from our sins? And the answer is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so I ask my kids, I, I usually go off script because I, I want to ask them kind of my version of the catechism. Well, you still have to do really good things, right? Don't you have to do good things? You have to listen to your parents. You have to do your homework. You can't tell lies. You have to work hard in school, right? It's only once you do that. Yeah, you need grace, but you also got to do those things, right? They say, no. Well, what if you do something really bad? I mean, something that nobody would forgive you for, like murder. Surely God wouldn't forgive somebody of that just by faith. They got to do something else. They got to pay for some of that bad that they've done, right? I even said, you know, what if you, what if you kidnapped somebody? And I'm like, oh gosh, I shouldn't have said that. Now they're going to think about getting kidnapped. <laughs> Will God still forgive you then? Can that person be saved just by faith? Surely not. And now, you know, my kids, they're, they're really young. I can't wait till the day when they're, they're old enough to start asking questions back, the questions that we ask, the question behind the question. Why? Why does God give us grace? If all that's true, if we're saved by faith and nothing else, if we add nothing to our salvation, if Jesus is perfect, if salvation is done, if it is free, in other words, if salvation is a free gift of undeserved grace given by God to sinners, why does he do that? cannot wait till they ask that question because there's only one answer. It's because he loves you. That's it. But why? Why? There's got to be something. No, it's because he loves you. But we have to, no. God loves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. God so loved you that he sent his only son to redeem you, to restore you, to wash you, to cleanse you, to forgive you, to give you what you do not deserve, which is a relationship and an eternity with him as your heavenly father because he loves you. Do you believe that? Or do you still think you have to earn his love? All major religions say, do this. God will love you. It's only Jesus who says, it's done. I love you. Believe me. Trust me. Follow me. Peter's still preaching. Verse 10. He's up there. He's making it clear. Now he turns to the Judaizers. He says to them, hey, that camp, this, this teaching, it's threatening the very heart of Jesus. So he rebukes them. He says, now therefore... Judaizers, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. This is the irony of legalism. Legalism is the teaching that you have to be better before God will approve you. This is the irony of legalism. It it always proposes things that its teachers cannot do themselves. And it's crushing. 
They pretend as if they can. They sit in judgment on others. But they themselves know this is a yoke. It's killing me. A crushing yoke that's killing my very soul. Paul, in fact, he, he speaks next in the Jerusalem Council. In verse 12, he talks about how he's seen this. He's seen Gentiles embrace the grace and the love of God simply by faith in Jesus. And he knew it better than nobody else. Paul, in fact, some years after this council, he wrote a letter to a church talking about Judaizers, talking about legalists. And here's what he said. Paul would write, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, talking to legalists. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Isn't that ironic? Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the works of the law and boast in God, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the very law that you're promoting. That's the irony. Those who believe that you need to be good enough to be approved by God, they know they're wearing an unbearable yoke that they themselves can't live up to. Those of you who believe that you have to obey enough to be loved by God, have you obeyed enough yet? You have to have a quiet time every morning. You ever missed a quiet time? This is my trap. You got to have all your doctrine lined up mm, perfectly, systematic. John Calvin. Was there a time when you didn't have all your doctrinal ducks lined up in a row? You have to pray more. Do you pray? You have to be sexually pure. You ever looked at a woman with lust? Same irony existed in this debate. Gentiles must observe the law of Moses. They must attend the Feast of Booths. You ever missed a feast? It's the irony of legalism. Everything I just mentioned, by the way, I mean, you could go through this list. They're good things. Some of them even are biblical things. And at times, it'd be wise to pursue those things, absolutely. But here's the difference, and it is the greatest distinction that the Bible gives us. All of those things that I just mentioned, they are fruit. They are the result. They are the byproduct of a person that is saved. They are not required to be saved. You see the difference? They are results of grace through faith. In Jesus alone, they are not a necessary condition to be saved by Christ. All works of the law are the result of salvation. They are not required for salvation. Those who boast in the law of God and say, this is the way to be approved by him, they're yoked. And they've never done it themselves. Peter's spoken, Paul's spoken, 
They're in lockstep agreement here. And then the last person to speak is James, the brother of Jesus. Verse 13, after Paul recounts his missionary journey and everything that he's done, verse 13, and all the assembly fell silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Simeon is Peter's Jewish name. To take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. This is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus, the King of David, who's been resurrected from the dead, restored And the reason I'm going to do that is in order that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. And this was a huge surprise. James was known as a scrupulous, obeying, devout man of the law. Most expected him, oh, he's definitely going to be on the side of the Judaizers, but he doesn't. He's in lockstep agreement with Paul and with Peter. Why? Because the Old Testament... The scriptures are lockstep with Paul and Peter. He says, just look at Amos. After the resurrection of the Savior, after the tent of David is restored, the whole reason God did that is in order that the whole of mankind, all of creation, and the Gentiles who are called by my name would come before me and place their faith in me and be saved. James is in lockstep agreement. With Peter and Paul, the Old Testament predicted this day would come. Amos said God would restore his people so that Jew and Gentile, all mankind, would be able to seek forgiveness and salvation in Jesus and be called by his name. And here's the brilliance of the Jerusalem Council. Speaking kind of as a consensus for the council, James closes verse 19 by saying, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't bring them back to the law. Don't do that. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled by blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city with those, oh, sorry, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Don't trouble the Gentiles. It's by grace we've been saved through faith, not the result of works so that nobody should boast. James knows the Old Testament ceremonial law, it is fading now that Jesus has come. Those ceremonial laws pointed to Jesus. Therefore, we don't go back to them or point others back to them. Yet Jesus has, James has this recommendation to make. He says, having established that salvation is by faith alone, he appeals to the Gentile believers. Hey, respect the consciences of those who have a Jewish heritage Don't unnecessarily eat things that'll grieve them, that'll make pangs of conscience for them. Moses has read week after week after week throughout the world. Let's point people to Jesus through it while not needlessly offending those who disagree with us until they understand that they have full freedom in Jesus. It's brilliant. Because really at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this whole debate goes back to the heart of Jesus' message, the heart of what Jesus said. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus calling to anyone who will listen, says, come to me, 
All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Not the yoke of the legalists. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just come to Jesus. He'll embrace you. Whenever I hear this passage, I always think of my kids. You know, if I'm, if I'm gone for a week, say I'm at a church conference or I'm just out traveling for a week for whatever reason, I open the door, my kids come running to me. They come to me because they love me, because I call out to them. They come, they wrap their arms around my legs. They, they want to tackle me to the ground. They want me to wrestle them. They want me to tickle them. They want me to give them a belly blaster. You know, that's where you do this on their belly. <laughs> they love it. When they run, when I open that door and they run to me, I don't say, whoa, have you taken a shower? Wipe your nose. Change your socks. You, I don't even want to see you. Get out of here. Oh, I embrace them. I love them because they're mine. Jesus here doesn't say, come, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, but be sure you haven't been circumcised, that you've tithed, that you've done your daily devotions this morning, and you haven't eaten rabbit in the last two and a half months. <laughs> doesn't say that. He says, just come to me. You can be weary, you can be overwhelmed, you can be wandering, you can be burdened, you can be stressed, you can be sinful. You can be distracted, you can be broken, you can be a Jew, you can be a Gentile. Just come to me, I'll give you rest, I'll give you forgiveness, I'll give you my righteousness, I'll give you salvation. It's done. Just come to me. My yoke is light. You don't want to put on the yoke of legalism. It's a crushing burden. That's my message. That's true Christianity. Paul, Peter, James, they're in lockstep agreement. This is the message. Faith in Jesus plus nothing. As Paul himself would say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, not the result of works so that no one should boast, but a free gift given by God. Because he loves you. Do you believe that?